Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Carlton Patrick. He is Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the College of Community Innovation and Education at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Patrick studies the psychology of legal decision-making, often from an evolutionary perspective. His research combines doctrinal legal analysis with the methodologies and perspectives of the behavioral sciences to examine the roots of human behavior in legally relevant contexts. And he is the, the co-author, together with Deborah Lieberman, who I've already had on the show, and to talk about this same book that is Objection, Disgust, Morality and the Law, and today we're going to focus a little bit more on the legal side of things with Deborah Lieberman. We've focused basically on the uh, more evolutionary perspective on disgust and its evolution. Uh, so, uh, Carlton, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. So, uh, okay, so I, I've just said that we're going to focus mostly on the legal aspects of the book, but before we get into it, I, I would just like to ask you two quick questions about the evolutionary basis of disgust, because, and one of them, I want to ask it because I've already had several different people who do research on disgust from an evolutionary perspective, and I guess that there's at least one thing where people uh, don't seem to agree that much, that is, the different domains of disgust. I guess that uh, when it comes to pathogen and sexual disgust, I mean, I guess that all people agree that we have those two domains, but then we also have moral disgust, and that's where things get a bit messy, because there are people that say that moral disgust is a different, independent domain of disgust, and others say that um, simply disgust as an emotion influences our morality in some way, but moral disgust doesn't exist as an independent uh, entity, let's say. So what is your take on that? So, uh, right. Uh, I'm sure Deb talked about this. A lot of this just has to do with where you carve your definitions. Um, and it could be that people are talking about the same phenomenon, but uh, one just calling it one thing and another another thing. But if what you're asking, what I think you're asking is, uh, is there uh, a separate type of disgust such that we experience um, the same cognitive and physiological sensations that we do when we see, uh, you know, a piece of rotting meat or maggots or something like that, or the thought of having sex with our dad. Do we experience that same sort of suite uh, of experiences when we witness uh, or think about a behavior that we find immoral that doesn't otherwise discuss that. So, uh, for example, a husband beating a wife or betrayal or cheating or, you know, corporate CEOs getting huge bonuses, this sort of thing. Um, so 
in that case, I think probably not. Uh, I think that, uh, I think Deb and I agree here, um, others have said as much that in those cases, often we're using the language of disgust, uh, sometimes the facial expressions of disgust to discuss those phenomenon. Um, but I don't think that that's uh, what we're actually doing is experiencing those same sensations. Um, now, if uh, what you mean by moral disgust, which I think Deb and I agree, uh, what certainly goes on is that we tend to moralize uh, certain behaviors and individuals that we find disgusting. So now the arrow is going the opposite direction. That very much so. So that's the sort of phenomenon at the crux of the book. But the other one, this sort of separate domain that we are disgusted by otherwise undisgusting moral violations, probably not. But I also don't think, I'm not so sure anyone in this area uh, has come out and made the claim that this is empirically set in old door. Uh, you know, this is definitely one case or the other. Uh, I just think probably, probably not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the arrow goes from gross to wrong. That, that is, we find something disgusting or something evokes our emotion of disgust. And then, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if it always happens that everything that people find disgusting, they tend to think about it as being something wrong. Uh, I mean, of course, something that they should avoid, but I'm not sure if it's always something that they moralize or something like that. But th that's the di uh, the direction that the arrow goes, right? From gross to wrong. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we think there is definitely an arrow going in that direction. Uh, to answer your first point, I don't think it, it uh, it's necessarily the case, right? So it's not that everything we find disgusting, we find a moral violation. So if you see someone picking their nose, uh, you probably find that disgusting. If you think that's a moral violation, you probably think it's a very minor one. Um, but nonetheless, I think it is, a, it is a real phenomenon that the things we find gross uh, often come to be, you know, moralized. We tend to think wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I mean, maybe there's also a bit of uh, inter or, or of transcultural or trans societal variation because sometimes we look back in history and there are things that were part of the systems of law of certain societies that we find really surprising that someone uh, that uh, it passed through the mind of someone to moralize those sorts of things just because people consider them disgusting, right? So, sure, yes. There are plenty of things uh, that I think the more sort of progressive members of contemporary society uh, look back on and think, oh, how did we ever uh, think that such a thing was wrong? Um, but then there are still plenty of places in the world where a lot of those behaviors, you know, uh, criminalized homosexuality, things like that, uh, still take place. Um, and you will, uh, I think, get people in those places both continuing to say it's both disgusting and wrong. Uh, 
I don't want to I I don't want to jump too far ahead. Um, but I think a lot of what happens often here is that you have the, the way this works, the way you're getting from gross to wrong is that disgust is kind of like a feeder for different moral systems. Uh, mm-hmm. So what it's doing is out there trolling um, for candidates. And, and what Deb and I, what we see in the book uh, is that, you know, disgust is often feeding in to these different systems of moral judgment. So, so one option might be, well, perhaps it's just indexing harm, right? Perhaps it's identifying something that might be harmful to us or harmful to those that are in our inclusive fitness circle. Um, you know, we don't want someone defecating in the street because that increases our exposure to pathogens, right? Um, so that type of thing you think might be more universal across cultures. Mm-hmm. But that can't be the full story, right? Because uh, often people find behaviors uh, disgusting um, that uh, don't have anything to do with them, right? So uh, we've you know, lots of people find it disgusting that other people uh, would have a sexual relationship with their sibling, mm-hmm. even though that doesn't impact your fitness. It's not harming you. Uh, even, you know, these are people who aren't your friends or family. They are presumptively not impacting your inclusive fitness or those who might provide you with positive affordances or, or provide you with sort of, uh, you know, reciprocity in some way. And somehow, uh, we are still moralizing those acts uh, that, not always, but to a reliable degree, we find disgusting. So there has to be something else going on there. And one of the things that we think might be going on is that uh, disgust is also feeding into these coalitional systems, uh, this moral psychology that depends on side-taking and or identifying groups that you either want to condemn, out groups that you want to condemn, or that you want to uh, distance yourself from. And you can see how, depending on the size of those groups or whoever's in power at that time, you might find variation across cultures. So you don't, there's sort of little variation across cultures as to whether someone thinks uh, having sex with their sister is gross. That would have been reliably uh, fitness harming, uh, uh, you know, no matter what culture you were living in, no matter what the sto- social norms were. Uh, however, you know, if you don't have any friends or family that are homosexual, uh, you're not homosexual, uh, you know, at this point, your someone's stance on homosexuality might, might depend on what uh, the sort of social milieu that they associate themselves with. Uh, are they aligning themselves with the majority here? Um, do the majority of people condemn that sort of behavior that they might find personally disgusting to engage in, but really doesn't impact their harm uh, or not? So I think what's happened, uh, you know, you see cultural differences now, uh, depending on sort of what the prevailing majority or enlightened majority attitude might be on different subjects like that. So certain things are pretty constant. Um, no one likes to eat feces, no matter where you live. Uh, almost no one. Um, <laughs> but, but you will see variation on certain behaviors of other, you know, when we're talking about condemning the behavior of, of other third parties, that's when you start to see a little more variation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Right, so let's get a little bit more into the legal side of things, properly speaking, because uh, at a certain point in the book, you refer to the difference between several different types of things that sort of uh, are influenced by the emotion of disgust in this case, like, for example, laws, taboos, social norms, social moralization. Uh, I mean, why do you distinguish between these types of things and why is it important to make that kind of distinction between laws, taboos, social norms, etc.? Okay, so this is, uh, this is an excellent question. Uh, depending on where we talked about it in the book, um, it very well could be that it wasn't actually a distinction to be made, but more just that we were um, making sure to be inclusive, to include all those different categories, okay. because uh, this phenomenon can happen across that range. Now, I've argued in the past that the difference between those things, between social norms, taboos, what becomes law, etc., cetera, uh, those often come down to just a level of institutionalization and how formalized these are. So in certain cases, particularly when we're talking about core wrongdoings, what might make up like a typical criminal law, so things like killing people, uh, whether, you know, whether and how okay it is to kill people, when it's okay to kill people, or to hurt them, to physically beat them, to steal from them, um, sexual assault, things like that, uh, often those things look really similar regardless of whether they have been formally, you know, captured and codified with the law, whether it's a taboo, uh, whether it's just a social norm. Uh, and the theory is that these are all emanating uh, from a sort of common, uh, intuitional, shared psychology. Uh, and even when you get really formalized about it in the law, it's sort of building on this core idea the further you get away, so so there's something that those core wrongdoings have in common, which is that they um, they are the way they take place in the modern world is very similar to the context in which they would have taken place over evolutionary time. Now, the further you get away from that, when you start are really complex and evolutionarily uh, systems like administrative law and contract law and we're getting further and further separated you know out there well now these distinctions start to make a difference because by the time you get up the law uh you know we are getting further away from these reliably developing intuitions and now there's all this extra layers that have been added on top so so you might see meaningful differences there but with these core areas of wrongdoing i'm, I'm actually working um with Daniel Sneezer right now, very cool project. Uh, and uh, what we're essentially doing is you have these old legal codes that have basically, you know, from the ancient Near East, ancient Far East, like Hammurabi's code, different things like that, where they have crystallized the legal judgments of, of those people at that time and they've assigned punishments. And so what we're doing is we're asking modern people to, to rate those different um, assign punishments and rate those different behaviors in terms of um, how morally wrong they find them. And what we found uh, is that even these really, what we tend to think of as, as very strange and exotic ancient legal codes, we still see strong positive correlations between modern raiders' uh, punishments 
those activities in ancient ones. But again, a lot of these are this sort of these are these sets of core wrongdoing. They're not uh, this um, crazy elaborate uh, things that we see in the law today. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and I guess that this is a very interesting thing to talk about, particularly the distinction between, for example, social norms and laws, because. I mean, sometimes it gets a bit tricky to think about how these types of things affect the lives of people that are part of a particular society. Because I guess that when we think about the law, it's just, uh, or most of the time, it's just social norms going up one scale and getting encoded in a system uh, that is enforced in a society that has certain types of uh, social structures or certain types of institutions set in place that uh, maybe, um, I mean, have more control over people's lives. I mean, but, but only in a certain way, because I guess that in more small-scale hunter-gatherer societies, for example, that social norms also play a big role in people's lives in the sense that if someone uh, breaks uh, any sort of important social norm, then the group can gather and even kill the person. So, I, I mean, but it's interesting to think about these sorts of dynamics, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. A, a lot of it just depends on how you want to define the word law, because I think even when you're talking about the enforcement of social norms uh, in a small scale society for, uh, you know, depending on how you define law, that's going to look a lot like what we do uh, with a modern, um, you know, with a modern sort of legal infrastructure. The main difference, I think, is the sort of depersonalization uh, that happens, you know, particularly when we're talking about the punishment of, of crimes and things like that. Um, you know, in a small-scale society, uh, you don't have that level of remove that you do where a disinterested third party is carrying it out. It's the state who's doing it. Um, it's not someone necessarily exacting revenge in the same way or rallying, uh, you know, their allies and their coalition to help them. But for the most part, when you have a when you have a prescribed rule, someone breaks that rule. There's some sort of uh, determination of whether or not they in fact did that, and how egregious it was, and then a punishment is carried out. Depending on how loosely you want to define law, these things, yeah, tend to look a lot alike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe in state societies, for example, it's harder for people to go unpunished if they resort to self-serving justice or something like that, right? Right. Uh, and so actually, you know, we stop you from doing that, right? Yeah. So uh, you've now committed a crime uh, if you, in fact, go and do that. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, often there are layers, there are philosophies that are added on in modern, modern legal systems, like protecting sort of individual rights, um, that maybe create a dichotomy be between what our sort of evolved instinct uh, and then what actually makes it into the law. So not only do, do we say so in, in the United States, uh, adultery is legally sanctioned. This is perfectly fine. But if you seek revenge for that, right, on, on an adulterous spouse and you 
physically hurt them or kill them or their paramour or whatever, you're going to be, we're going to stop you from doing that. And I think, um, you know, if you were to propose this state of affairs uh, in a lot of small scale societies, that would seem absurd. Uh, I, I think that, um, that that type of behavior is protected and that we're going to, the state is going to stop you from seeking retribution, uh, if that makes sense. Okay, so before we move on to certain specific types of laws that derive from the emotion of disgust, let me just ask you one more question that has to do with the legal codes or the legal system, because sometimes when people talk about, okay, what is the law? Sometimes people say that the law is not moralistic. I mean, people get into these discussions where maybe someone is trying, for example, to force some sort of religious morality on the law and then people don't like it and then people start saying that the law isn't really uh, moral or moralistic in some sort of way that is sort of detached from uh, the moral that is part of the society that it operates on. But I, I mean, it would be really weird if that was the case, right? I mean, a system of laws is basically something that comes from the agreed upon, let's say, collective morality and that is simply encoded into a system that then is used by uh, certain institutions that the society creates to monitor people's behavior. And I mean, if we are worried about people's behavior, of course, we are moralizing other people when we create laws which say what they can and can't do. Right. Yeah, okay. So this is a can of worms. Uh, <laughs> let me let me start with the easy answer, okay. which is the easy half of the answer, which is if we are asking just from a descriptive point of view whether legal systems reflect the moral inclinations of the people that uh, are making them. Mm -hmm. I think it's extremely hard to argue with a straight face um, that 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 isn't true. Uh, I mean, um, there have been uh, not as many studies as you think, but um, Paul Robinson's done some cool work with with Rob Kurzban and John McHale and some other people basically show that um, by and large, the actual laws, at least in American legal system, mm -hmm. that get made also reflect the moral judgments of the sort of lay members of that society. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think anyone can really argue with a straight face that the two are in fact detained. Now, mm -hmm. having said that, uh, there is a whole giant debate in legal philosophy over whether they ought to. Uh, or, or whether it's necessary, right? So on the one hand, you have legal uh, positivists who say that, uh, you know, what makes a law valid um, is only that a sovereign who has authority to enforce the law has, uh, has passed this law through whatever the valid um, method for making laws is at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, you have natural lawyers who basic, basically say, uh, a law has to be moral 
in order for it to be valid. And if a law conflicts with our morality, uh, that law is, is no longer valid. And and so this is a uh, this is a this is a huge this is a huge fight. Very smart legal philosophers on both sides um, fight over this thing. Uh, you can hold contradictory views. So I personally um, think there's no particular reason our laws should be made based on our sort of uh, reliably developing moral intuitions. But the question of whether they are, I think it, it's pretty clear that they are. Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a I mean that's a big that's a that's a, that's a big area of fight for sure. Yeah, but uh, I mean, just a follow up to that, even if it doesn't tr uh, track uh, the collective morality, let's say, or the morality of lay people, I mean, since when we're talking about laws, we're talking about uh, rules, let's say, that govern people's behavior in a given society and that tell them what they can and can't do. I mean, they are inevitably moral, right? Because we are, and also when people are judged, it is their behavior that is being judged by someone, right? Uh, okay. I, I don't think it necessarily has to be the case, but let me let me walk you through so let's say you, uh, we choose something as a society uh, that we want our law to accomplish so let's say we want to um, we want to prevent the most possible harm we can with the criminal law or let's say we want contracts uh, to make business as efficient as possible and then you can take this sort of consequentialist view with with any given law does it further this purpose uh, or, or not now, you could say that this is a sort of, it's become an empirical question and saying right or wrong is no longer the correct terminology. It's just, is it accomplishing what we set out to do? But what happens is he still regresses to the question of, well, why are we choosing to minimize harm? Uh, why are we choosing to make business as efficient as possible or to promote fairness or to promote equality or whatever we're trying to do here? And I think, yeah, you sort of get to this this area where you are regressing on some on some moral judgment you are saying this thing is good or better or we should promote it and so even if it becomes a sort of consequentialist calculation on the back end on the very front end when you're choosing what to promote it's hard to argue that that isn't a moral a moral choice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so i i guess i understand and it's uh I now understand that it's a tricky question to say or to think about if uh, if systems of law are moral or not. Okay, it's more complicated than what I thought. So let, let's get into more specific topics. I mean, things in the law that derive from the emotion of disgust or that we can track to the emotion of disgust. And I mean, in the book, you talk about things like obscenity, defamation, uh, castes and contamination, regulation of human sexual relationships and all those sorts of things. So, uh, I, I mean, would you like perhaps to give some uh, or a couple of illustrative examples of these things, perhaps to set the stage for us to, after that, talking uh, to talk a little bit about 
uh, I mean, if we should really take seriously some of our intuitions that derive from our emotional disgust reaction to certain kinds of behavior, to what extent that's useful, if we should keep those laws uh, active, let's say, or not, or if we should simply eliminate them and use other sorts of criteria. I mean, could you give us a couple of uh, strong examples to then talk about those kinds of things? Yeah, sure. So, right. So what we essentially do in that part of the book that you referenced is we go through and what we've done is we've made this argument that, look, we have these two, uh, at least two core domains of disgust that try to keep us, you know, depending on how far you want to simplify it, try to keep us from ingesting things that are bad for us or touching things that are bad for us, right? Uh, eating rotten food, uh, toxins, touching disease, that sort of thing. Um, and certain sexual behaviors uh, that would have been fitness negative or, or at least not, uh, you know, not the sort of optimal reproductive strategy, right? So um, steering away from certain partners, such as uh, those who are too young to reproduce, so very young kids, those who are too old to reproduce, um, so like the elderly uh, kin, um, often people of the same sex. So certain individuals uh, that discuss tells us, don't go here. Uh, this is not going to be a good use of your time for producing the most healthy, viable offspring you can. Okay, so we've established this. And then what we do in this part of the book that you're asking about is go through and say, look, here are all of these things that biology sort of instills in us if we develop in a sort of normal way. Uh, or the average way, uh, that um, uh, are to be avoided. A lot of people find these things close. And what we're saying is they also become wrong. And this matters because not only do we take this intu intuition of wrong that's just sort of sitting out here, but this becomes uh, codified and enforced. So, for example, if you look at the regulation of sexual behavior uh, in contemporary societies and over the years, a lot of the types of relationships you see prohibited are explicitly these ones that we feel discussed personally if we were to engage in them, right? Um, and, and, you know, this is not, so you can look at things like um, homosexual behavior, uh, having sex with animals, uh, having sex with corpses, necrophilia, incest. Um, uh, and again, the the only thing these have in common uh, from a sort of descriptive point of view um, psychologically is that for a lot of people, they find these disgusting. They don't find them equally disgusting. Not everyone finds them disgusting, but these reliably develop. So you look at these type of behaviors and they've been uh, forbidden as far back as we can track laws, right? So oldest, oldest legal codes from Mesopotamia and Babylon, Sumerian legal codes, Kodi Amurabi and Ornamu and you can literally march your way up and you can see that these various uh, sexual relationships have been forbidden forever and ever. And you can walk all the way up through modern society and only in the most progressive of modern societies we tend to see uh, you know, a pushback. There have been blips in the historical timeline, 
Um, people love to point to ancient Greece, mm-hmm. uh, but these are kind of outliers. Um, for the most part, these things have been universally condemned. And the interesting thing is when you get into the rationalizing, so why exactly are we prohibiting these? What what makes them wrong is that you see all sorts of pretextual agreements uh, about this. Um, you know, and my, my favorite are why we can't have sex with animals. And often it's it's something like, well, it's an it's an issue of consent, and also we don't like to use animals as mean, which is so absurd. I mean, I don't know of a single animal that's consented to the slaughterhouse or to being used to, uh, for transportation or eaten or any of the other ways we use animals. So there's something about this particular thing that we do with them or might do have sex that really you know we find that disgusting whereas all these other means we don't find disgusting even though the the supposed rationales apply to all of those um so you find also these same sort of things creep up when we talk about obscenity so what words and pictures we can't show and this is this is a nice example because often those words those images you can trace them back to these very same things there's a really reliable overlap with the things that we tend to find disgusting and what's interesting is that instead of just saying uh, you know we find them disgusting over the years the um you know courts and judges and legislators have built up this intricate language uh of rules around how do we know something's obscene, right? So we have this very famous test in America, this Miller test. It's a three-part test. When we're trying to decide if something is obscene, we ask, well, would an average person applying contemporary community standards uh, find that this appeals to the prurient interest, so a shameful appeal to sex? Uh, do we, um, so does it satisfy that? Does it also depict certain acts in a patently offensive way? And these acts are almost always sex and excretion and then the third part of the test is well does it lack any does it lack all any and all scientific political artistic value and what happens is when you look through the case law and you look through these courts and and you try to figure out exactly how to do this often uh you have this intricate system of rules but what it really boils down to is a juror or a judge's determination of what's prurient what's offensive and so you have this intuition that's just been nested in the rule and often just sort of regresses to how do you feel about this. Uh, so, you know, one of the most famous lines uh, of the American Supreme Court, you have Justice uh, Potter Stewart in a, in a case about trying to decide whether certain types of pornography was obscene. And he basically said, look, I'm not going to try to craft a decision of, or a definition of hardcore pornography, but I know it when I see it. Uh, and I think that sort of, that's someone just calling a spade a spade, just saying, look, I know when I find something so disgusting and so off-putting that I'm going to say, we can't allow this. And even though I can't give you the definition, it's there. Uh, and, and so what we see is these very clever, very crafty lawyers who build something that looks like an objective rule, but what it really reduces to is a, is a psychological intuition. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, that case, it really reminds me of the, that phenomenon that people like Jonathan Haidt identified the moral dumb funding, right, where people have a moral intuition and then people start asking them why is it the case that they think that that particular thing is wrong for people to do and then they start coming up with post-hoc rationalizations and if people keep asking them they keep coming up with different things but by the end we know that they are simply coming up with them on the spot so oh it's beautiful isn't it yeah i'm gonna live <laughs> off those for, for years to come yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah and I, I mean i mean you were referring to obscenity and obscene words and another thing that came to mind was that very fun bit where George Carlin back in the 70s had that list of seven words that people couldn't pronounce on TV and radio and couldn't use on papers, I guess. And I mean, it's really funny because I remember watching one of his specials uh, a bit before he died, like in 2005 or 2006, and uh, basically he ended up the his stand-up performance with a huge list of words that, that he kept piling up during the years that people couldn't use. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure if all of them were punished by law, but at least that people were really upset that someone used on telev- on American TV or something like that. And uh, I mean, it's really funny because the credits uh, start passing and he kept reading that list and it was never ending. So, Right, yeah, exactly. And uh, we write about it in the book. Uh, Pinker's written about it before, I think in the stuff of thought, that if you look, if you go down and you examine that list of words, uh, a lot of them refer to things we find uh, re- we find disgusting. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, let's now then talk a little bit about uh, if we should use these moral intuitions. In this case, they derive from the emotion of disgust. But I mean, they could derive from maybe other negative or positive emotions that we have. But uh, referring specifically to disgust, do you think that there are some specific cases where we should still take our emotional reaction to certain things seriously when creating laws or that we should simply dismiss it and use other types of better criteria? Uh, so my view is no, uh, that we shouldn't. Now, there are those who think uh, that there's a middle ground, right? So Dan Kahan has written that, look, um, disgust has some issues here. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, um, but it can be properly directed, right? So what we need to do is uh, use criteria to determine, well, what's a good spot to aim this disgust, which is a sort of powerful tool. Um, and 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 once we've decided that, you know, we can steer it to as a, it's kind of a weapon, right, to discourage things we don't like, uh, and to make certain things shameful and that sort of thing. So there's a couple answers to this, but a really good one 
was made by uh, Daniel Kelly, one of his uh, co-authors. I uh, forgive me from forgetting the name, but what they said is, look, if you're going to do that, then ultimately it's whatever those separate criteria you're using um, that are going to make the decision. So let's say you want to rely on disgust to point out things that might cause harm. Well, ultimately, what you're doing in that instance is just searching for things that cause harm. So you're, since you're going to have to fall back on that anyway, mm-hmm. why rely on this thing that we know is troubled, uh, that we know has, um, you know, uh, certain negative consequences uh, that are attached to it and kind of side effects from deploying it in this manner? Um, why not just rely on that more objective sort of criteria that we decide on is this is a good thing to go to uh and and i think that's a really i think that's a really good a really good argument there's a secondary argument which is uh well why should we defer to disgust in the first place what is so special about it now it's a very effective evolutionary tool right it is very good at uh you know at promoting survival and reproduction but that doesn't mean we should sort of a priori give it a privileged status uh, in the law. Um, someone has to make the argument that there is something about this sort of our biology in this instance that makes it worth keeping around. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, uh, when you make the case to try to remove uh, disgust as a motivation to write laws, let's say, uh, remove it from the picture or at least from the set of criteria to consider when doing so. Uh, I mean, are you refer- uh, of course the book is about this guest, but do you think that we should apply that to all other sorts of emotions, even maybe sometimes the positive ones or, uh, or, or are you thinking only about this guest specifically? Uh, no, I mean, so disgust is a great test case, but I think you could apply the same type of thinking. Um, so here's here's the thing that, that worries me that I, I'd like to caution against, which is when you feel a gut intuition that something is right or wrong uh, and it comes ready-made, right? So uh, exactly the sort of moral dumbfounding issue where it is intuition first, rationalization second like let me justify my gut instinct here uh we need to be careful there anytime you feel that you should be questioning why and that why often has to do with well what role did that intuition play over time uh in promoting survival and reproduction it is a function of biology uh, at this level, I would like to think that what we're doing is something closer to philosophy, right? We are, we are using other processes that aren't quite so, that don't deliver these sort of ready-made conclusions. So things like logic, uh, and rationalization, and, and uh, argumentation, and, you know, processes that don't come with a substantive uh you know, with actual content, with right or wrong. They're just processes for evaluation that we should be really relying on those as much as possible um, and questioning why we automatically feel that something is right or, or wrong. So, yeah, so disgust is a great test case. 
because I think we're getting to a stage where we realize uh, this has done a little harm over the time, over time, um, or things we don't like. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, you know, my hope would be that we are able to apply that same sort of rigorous examination to whatever instinct is bubbling up from from down below. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to make this point clear or a bit clearer, let's say, um, I, I mean, you're arguing for uh, removing uh, someone using that sort of argumentation, like, for example, when they say that they know that these disgusts him or her, and so when he or she sees that happening, uh, he or she knows that that disgusts him, and then that should be prohibited or something like that. I mean, to remove that from the set of criteria that we use to create laws. But uh, I, I mean, you're not saying that, I mean, we are able to th even think about what is right and what is wrong without these emotions that we have, right? I mean, the, they are still useful. In that sense, I, I mean, it would be really hard for me to imagine that someone would even be able to rationally think about these sorts of things without having some sort of emotion attached to them to be able to at least uh, evaluate them in some way. Yeah, so this is a good, uh, I mean, this is a really good point, and it has to do with, is such a thing even even possible? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, right? Maybe, maybe not. That's kind of an empirical question. W what I'd like to hope is something that sort of I referred to earlier, which is uh, by saying we're trying to decide if something is right or wrong, you're already presupposing a sort of deontological point of view. So there's another point of view, uh, you know, something more consequentialist or utilitarian, which says, let's first figure out what we're trying to accomplish here. Are we trying to promote equality? Are we trying to promote fair fairness? Are we trying to promote individual liberties? And then, then it literally, once you've done that, once you've set your priors, uh, which sort of above my pay grade to decide what those are, this is you know, kind of huge questions about who gets to decide how a society governs itself and what's the best system. And these are sort of moral and legal philosopher questions. Uh, but once you have that set of things that you're trying to establish, well, then it just becomes a question of, uh, are, are we in fact affecting these things with the laws that we're passing? Uh, by by um, you know, defining a breach of contract in a certain way, are we making things more efficient or are we not? And in that case, you are now removing the sort of day-to-day -day question of right or wrong. That's no longer, you know, you're not doing that job anymore. So by saying it's something right or wrong, you're automatically supposing that the thing that we are trying to effectuate is enforcing uh, things we think are right uh, and preventing things we think are wrong. But it could be we are trying to... Uh, prevent things we think are inefficient or prevent things we think are harmful. Um, it doesn't have to reduce, I think, always to uh, sort of moral judgment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I mean, another question, and now I guess that 
this has to do with what we call the is-ought dichotomy, because as you were alluding to, whenever we uh, create laws uh, or legal codes, we are always thinking about what we want to arrive at uh, at the level of our society. I mean, what we would like our society to be, let's say. So we are operating at the level of values. And, and so, I mean, uh, during part of our interview, we were talking about how the emotion of disgust works, uh, why and how it evolved, what functions it has, and things like that. And I mean, that's the descriptive side of things that comes from science, and science can give us facts. But then, I mean, when we are deciding what we should do, what we want for our societies, what we think is good and bad, and things like that, I, I mean, there's a sort of discontinuity there, right? And, uh, and I mean, of course, uh, you and me, we can think that these obscenity laws and things regarding human sexual relationships, I mean, in certain places, the laws that they have there to regulate those types of behavior, for us, they don't really make sense, but we can't really solve the issue in terms of appealing to facts and saying that the person is factually wrong, right? That's correct. So in a lot of ways, uh, that makes my point of view and yours, if you share it, uh, the more difficult one to defend, because it's almost a simpler answer to say, look, if we universally share, if it is a descriptive fact that we universally share a lot of the same values, uh, then it becomes much easier to just codify them. Uh, we have a basis now. It's a, it is an empirical question of what values do, do do the majority of people hold, right? If in a like a pure democracy, it would work like that. Then you start to get problems though when the agreement is not universal, mm -hmm. right? So when when you have uh, you know a minority of people uh, who hold a view. Uh, that then you have to face, you know, what Madison called a tyranny of the majority, right? The majority, it, to the extent that it um, it uh, doesn't share these views, is sort of imposing its will uh, on the minority and making them conform. Now, uh, if if we were uh, perfect, uh, you know, perfect cooperative creatures, uh, and there was harmony uh, abound, uh, that that would be okay. But as we outline in the book, you know, a lot of what our sort of coalitional psychology taps into is just things like number. Um, and there are sort of dark instincts that comes with ostracizing uh, and um, marginalizing these smaller groups uh, simply because in our evolved environment, it was kind of a zero-sum game for uh, resource competition. So, you know, we can have some pretty dark instincts about marginalizing, ostracizing, demonizing, exploiting smaller groups uh, just because, right? Now, there's an ultimate reason for that, but once you get further away from, from that, um, and, and then you have to ask, is that the sort of thing we want to instill? 
you start to have problems. So now you need, again, you need this outside set of criteria to fall back on to evaluate this, these sort of shared, uh, these sort of shared intuitions, which, which is the harder job to come up with that set of criteria, I think. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay, so let's just explore one last topic because we've been talking about uh, how the emotion of disgust influences how we write or formulate laws, but there's also another aspect uh, of how our legal systems operate or at least how we execute the laws that we create in our societies that also is influenced by emotions like disgust and others and i guess that's really important to talk about here as well that is um, in in courtrooms for example uh, you in america have juries here in portugal we don't have them but whatever uh, I, I mean all people that are evaluating the evidence the jury the judge and others i mean they can be exposed to certain kinds of things that trigger their emotions, in this specific case, the emotion of disgust, uh, including, for example, gruesome photos or something like that. So, I, I mean, to what extent, and we already know that, for example, juries and judges, I mean, they have all sorts of biases and heuristics that they use when they are evaluating the evidence, and that's all very problematic. But, uh, I mean, to what extent do you think that uh, we should expose the people that are evaluating the evidence to those sorts of uh, triggering material, let's say? Right, okay. So, so now you're touching on a sort of separate question that I think is an easier answer. The first one is, well, okay. So one version of this argument is about whether disgust can be used in deciding what sorts of things we want to prohibit and, 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 and what we want to allow. And there's a kind of, there's a fight there to be had about whether that's a good criteria. Okay, but then there's this other argument. Once we've decided those things and we're trying to administer those laws and carry them out, to what extent are emotions or, and, or discussed in this case, interfering with the accurate and efficient implementation of those laws? And so this is one of those areas because what we know is if you show participants, mock jurors, evidence that activates disgust. So this can be things like gruesome photos, it's like really gruesome photographs. Uh, it can also be descriptions that use sort of disgust-loaded imagery, disgusting language. What happens there is that it influences uh, here a juror's ability not just to evaluate uh, whether they are upset something happened or not, whether they are disgusted with this activity, but whether or not someone in fact committed that. So, uh, and also their levels of confidence. So you will see jurors uh, who see, when compared to controls, who see gruesome photographs, uh, not only are more likely to convict something, even even when it's factually the exact same, they're not they're not only more likely to think that that person did in fact do the thing, right. but also they're more confident that their judgment is correct. So so here here we have to me this is extremely hard to defend. I think that reasonable minds can differ over what 
criteria we're basing our laws on. But here, this is after the fact, and we're just trying to make sure that jurors and or judges, if they're uh, the fact finders in a particular case, if they're doing this correctly, uh, are, are, you know, in this case, it's be, their ability to do these sort of logical things, these logical deductions, is being interfered with here with disgust. Uh, and to me, this seems like a sort of clear-cut case of, I, I'm not exactly sure how you, how you would justify this. Uh, now, so your specific question, should we, um, I, I think you're asking, do we tell them about it? Do we let right. them know what kind of, uh, so maybe, but we know that that always, that doesn't always do the trick, right? You can tell people, uh, I mean, you can tell them that they're biased and they have all these cognitive biases and they're real and you can show them the data. Um, and what they'll say is, oh yes, I believe that that in fact is the case, that people are biased like that, but I don't think my judgment was biased like that, right? So yes, the bystander effect applies to everyone else, but that didn't go, you know, when I was making that decision whether or not to help, that didn't affect me. Um, now, it still might be better than nothing, but then you always worry about, are you pushing them too far the other way? You know, if you tell a juror, you're going to see a disgusting photograph, don't let that influence your determination of whether they did it or not. Well, you can't unring that bell then. Are they then going to assume that maybe, uh, are they going to push too far back in the other direction and say, well, yes, I was grossed out, but uh, I'm going to repress these feelings that I have that this person did it because the judge just told me I shouldn't rely on this sort of thing. So it's a hard, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really hard question. I think it's a problem to be fixed. How to fix it, um, you know, the sort of standard answer now is a judge looks at that evidence and decides, can a jury see this? Will its prejudicial value outweigh its probative value? Um, and so it's sort of a case by case, do I let the jury see it or not? Um, that might be as good as we can get. I, you know, I'm not sure uh, if it's going to, if it gets better than that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a problem. Yeah, and I mean, it's very complicated, right? Because even if people decide or say to themselves that they're not going to pay attention to their own emotions, I mean, from the moment they are emotionally affected, even if they tell to themselves, okay, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, I mean, people don't really have access to what's happening in their minds unconsciously and then many times they simply come up with better ways to justify what pops up in their heads. And I mean, people are intelligent. People can come up with several different ways to justify their own intuitions, right? Yeah, precisely. I mean, it's like telling someone, don't think of the marshmallow man. That's what they're going to think of. And then the opposite problem is, no, no, honey, I swear, just tell me. How many people have you slept with? I'm not going to get angry. I promise you. It's like you, you can say whatever you want, uh, but you only have so much domain over those over those reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Carlton, uh, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. Before we go, uh, I mean, I will be leaving links to your work and to the book in the description box of the interview. Would you like to make reference to some specific websites, for example, where people can have uh, access to your work more easily? Uh, thank you for the opportunity. I have zero social media pre pre uh, presence. I have an email account. That's about as far. I don't even have a LinkedIn. Um, 
I have an SSRN page. People can find my work there. Uh, it's linked off my bio on uh, on the web page. Uh, so Google can get you there pretty easily. But um, I, I appreciate it, Ricardo. Do, do you have any ResearchGate profile or something like that? So, um, so I have an SSRN profile, which is uh, the sort of social sciences, the sort of legal equivalent of, of that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I will also include that in the description box of the interview and uh, Carlton, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show and I really loved the conversation. So. Oh, thanks so much, Ricardo. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. You also have the alternatives of supporting me via subscri Subscribestar or Paypal. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my $5 or more patrons, including Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Tafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Ely, John Connors, Adam Cassell, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and my three producers, Isar Weber, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.